Blog Talk Radio. This passage is from a book called Earth Medicine. And this book was lent to me by someone who is sacred to me and holds a special place in my heart. And I will read the beginning of this and we'll move on. Uh, Mother, it's called Healing Prayer from Earth Medicine. Mother, teach me how to heal the feelings inside of me. Teach me to respect all life with burgeoning humility. Show me the path away from abuse where everything sings of life, where heartache is just a memory of ancient human strife. Let my spirit be healed until dying holds no fear, where rebirth is welcomed bringing me joyous tears. These are the things that I desire for all I want to truly know, the pathways and healing passage through the dark night of the soul. My name is Daniel Michael, and right now you're listening to Green Magic, Green Medicine with Susan Weed. And we'll be right back. Forbidden Archaeology Forgotten history, divination, magic, cryptozoology, UFOs, nature, science, and spirit. All this and more right here on the Main Street Universe Radio Network. Up and then a nice blanket of snow, and it's like oh, winter. 
Oh, we haven't forgotten how to do this season. Hooray. I actually have a certain affection with winter. Because Me I'm always how be people survive. And so whenever it gets colder, I'm fascinated just by watching, like, even as a construction worker, when I'm watching the other houses, like, where people already live, and I'm watching them, and the little fires come up, and I see the little, you know, little smoke, and I, there's something to me that's very intimate and beautiful about winter that I think people don't understand sometimes. They just think, oh, it's cold. Well, okay, if you're not working in it all day, which I have done, um, uh, I, I think it's actually a very beautiful and introspective time it's just how I feel. I've always felt that way about winter. I've, I've always been fascinated by it. <laughs> I think when we let ourselves that winter can become that introspective and that it's that deep and nourishing dark, but it can be difficult for a modern people to do that because the pressure is on for them to work, work, work. Right. And not exactly. that time off. It's it said that our ancestors, and I know I was in a cave like this in Germany, that you kind of scrooched into one cave, and you had to, like, really squeak in there. And that was a kind of biggish cave, and then there was an even narrower passage that you really had to hold your breath and shimmy your way into. And there was a small cave, and that was the bear's cave. And the people would wait for the bear to go and den up, and then they would go in the big cave, and they would sleep through most of the winter. Mm. And this cave, well, they found um, carvings, I think, dated back to over 20,000 years ago in the cave. Wow. Yeah, it's been occupied for a really long time, this cave in Germany. And that that sense of, yes, our ancestors just went in there and hunkered down and slept. Right. We were human uh, hibernators. <laughs> With the bear, right? Right. Just, hey, right. form, just snuggle up and... <laughs> snuggle up and everybody snooze the winter away. It was How in the cave. wonderful. He's in the cave. <laughs> <laughs> well, last just time we had a show. We said, oh, my, look at this. We have come to the end of working with Stephen Booner's Herbal Antibiotics book. Not that anything yes. could really ever be at an end with that book because it is just so full of such amazingly useful information for all of us. But that we were coming to the end of our time together with it and right. that I was going to see if I could think up a new category. And tell you what has really um, come to me in terms of thinking of that new category is that I don't think that we have really talked a lot about botany. No. And botany is really fascinating. Right. So I want to spend the next few whatevers. Getting into, getting into right, getting into botany, and seeing where that takes us. Okay. 
because botany is the study of plants. So if we're interested in plants, then we're going to be interested in botany. And I'd like to start back, say, oh, 500 or so years ago. And, oh, longer than 500 years. Let's make it seven or 800 years ago. And at that time... If you were learning about plants from me, I would teach you the names of the plants that I used. Right. And they wouldn't necessarily be the names that anybody else used. And that, strangely enough, really worked out just fine. And it worked out just fine because people tended to stay home. Right. We kind of take it for granted nowadays that we can and do travel about. Uh, but that is not the norm for most human beings in most times. Right. Make this point. I ask if people know about that famous painter who painted things like Starry Night and Sunflowers and who we hear cut off his ear. What's his name? Uh, Van Gogh. Van Gogh. That's what we call him. That's exactly the right answer. Go is the name of a town. Hmm. Vaughn means from. We don't even really know his name. We just know the town he's from. So maybe a whole lot of people cut off their ears back then? <laughs> no, what I'm saying is that we were so identified with our town that that became our name. Right. Hildegard of Bingen. Van Gogh, from Go. We were, we still are in some respects, identified with the town we're from. But right. it, was, it was really, really powerful, especially in Europe, well before this modern time, when we travel around and think, not a whole lot of it. Right. So just knowing from me the names of the plants as I know them wouldn't have been a problem for you, my student, because you were going to stay home just like me. Right. We were all going to stay home. We were all going to use those names for the plants. And it, it didn't really yeah. didn't really matter if anybody else agreed with us. Yeah. No, yeah. Because everybody who mattered, that is the people in our town, agreed with us. And mm -hmm. that was sufficient. Mm -hmm. And of course one of the reasons we have to start more than five hundred years ago is that 
500-plus years ago, something very extraordinary happened caused by a person who didn't stay home. Mm. And that is an entire new continent was suddenly discovered. And that suddenly brought into existence so many new plants and animals and everything that it was basically just total system collapse. Mm. It's, it, it came just about impossible for things to stay together. Things had already been coming, shall we say, a little bit apart at the seams. Mm. And that was primarily due to the fact that people had been cultivating and breeding roses for a very, very, very long time. And the names of the roses were becoming really cumbersome. There were names of some roses that covered four pages. Wow. Well, this rose crossed with that rose crossed with this rose, right? And to right. keep track of bourgeois track, gardening. Yeah, to keep track of all that. And again, said in the context of. There's no general agreement about the names of anything. <laughs> so it's not like people were all speaking totally different languages, but when it came to naming plants, it was a lot of totally different languages. So one summer, I got to do something that thrilled my bibliotech heart. My dear friend, Betsy was the cousin of Stephen J. Gould. And Stephen J. Gould, you're probably thinking, gosh, I kind of know that name, but I'm not sure. He was a paleontologist, so not exactly a household word. And he was at Harvard, and he Hmm. actually did write some books that had really did, you know, get into the popular mind. It was quite remarkable in um, the kinds of, uh, of understanding that he had of what he called deep time. At any rate, we went to visit him, and his office was the typical absent-minded professor office. There were books everywhere, laying around, stacked around, propped up here and there, all over the office. And we're not just talking books. We're talking books. Right. We're talking like first editions of books that are a 1,000 years old. And my friend Betsy said, hey, cuz, what if you let Susan and I come back and spend a week or so here cataloging and putting your library in order? And he said, sure. And we went, oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. So I got to spend 
so much time among these amazing, rare, incredible books picked out by one of the most intelligent minds of the last century. And to read and see how our modern naming system came to be. Right. And what I saw was a bunch of learned men talking about, first of all, what kind of pattern should they choose to represent all of life? Mm. Now, that's a really great question, isn't it? Yes. Should it be like concentric circles? And we'll have, like, humans on the outer circle and then other animals and then plants and and so on as the circles get smaller. Should it be a big spiral? Should it be lines? Should it be intersecting lines, triangles? And the form that they finally agreed on could not have been a better choice because it looks, when you look at it, like a tree. And sometimes, in fact, called the tree of life. At the roots of the tree were placed the two types of cells, eukaryotes and prokaryotes, cells without a nucleus and cells with a nucleus. And all life was thought to be made up of those two kinds of cells. Well, now we have found a third kind of cell down in the the sulfur vents in the deep ocean floor. But that's fine. There's plenty of room in the roots of the tree of life for yet a third kind of cell. And that great tree of life grows up, and we're going to envision that it splits into two large trunks. And we call these trunks flora and fauna, right? Right. Plant life and animal life. Mm-hmm. And since what we're interested in is botany, which is the flora we're going to say adieu to the big trunk of fauna, to all of the animal life, although we might reference it now and then. And we are going to move along the trunk of the plant life. One of the first divisions in this trunk is a division between flowering plants and non-flowering plants. So we think of a rose. That's a flowering plant. That's obviously a flowering plant. And a daisy, it's a flowering plant. And a violet, that's a flowering plant. And a tomato and an apple tree and cherry trees, those are all flowering plants. We're quite familiar with flowering plants. Many people, if ask what a non-flowering plant is. And what I usually do is rather than ask anyone to name a non-flowering plant, because we're always outside when I'm asking this, I ask them to point to a non-flowering plant. Mm. 
And it's interesting to me how many people point to trees. Mm. Trees are, in fact, flowering plants. Yes, they do. But if they happen to point to a tree that has lichen growing on it, then I can say, you're right, lichen is a non-flowering plant. And we all know what that lichen is. It's usually gray or greenish gray growing on the tree. And then at the foot of the tree will often be some moss, which is another non-flowering plant. And if we're lucky, there's a mushroom growing in the moss, which is another non-flowering plant. And, of course, there will also be some ferns growing there, which are also non-flowering plants. There are also plants like horsetail which is a non-flowering plant. And these plants all reproduce by sporulation. Rather than having flowers, which are the reproductive or sexual parts of the plant, non-flowering plants create spores. And these spores, through a long complicated, rather beautiful, and amazing process can give rise to new plants. So you don't have the same kind of sexual apparatus in a non-flowering plant than you do in a flowering plant. We believe that non-flowering plants are older. It appears the first life forms on the planet reproduced by cloning. We think of an amoeba, right? Okay. We all learned about amoebas back in science class. An amoeba eats and eats until it gets too big for itself, and then plop, mitosis, and you've got two amoebas. Mm. And that's what cloning is. It's also called asexual reproduction. And that asexual reproduction has stayed with us, but has become more complicated and more sophisticated in its finest flowering, if I may use that rather awkward phrase, since there's no flowers involved, in the non-flowering plants. And so they certainly, um, the liverworts and the mosses and all of those are fascinating and a fascinating part of botany. But for most of us, they're very difficult to see, to distinguish, and to form relationships with. Uh To most people, moss is moss is moss. Now, the vast majority of people, as I say, this is reindeer moss and this is pincushion moss, they can see the difference because the reindeer moss is spiky and gray and the pincushion moss looks like a pincushion and it's green. And then I can take them and I can say, this is sphagnum moss. And they can see the difference there too because sphagnum moss will also grow in um, water that has a pH that will make the sphagnum moss red. So it's quite a distinctive 
looking moss. And that gets people kind of opening their eyes and looking. And then to get them to looking at different lichens, lichens that grow on trees and lichens that grow on rocks and all of the different colors of lichens that there are. But let's face it, we're not so interested in mosses and lichens and so on because we can't eat them. Although there is a kind of lichen called rock tripe that grows in big kind of peeling away black and brown sheets from cliff faces, and it can be eaten. It, believe me, it, nobody would go out of their way to pick this rock tripe and eat it if they had any other choice. But if it's eating your shoes or eating rock, rock tripe, you will do it. You have to boil it and boil it and boil it. And what, it's growing off a rock cliff. What does it taste like? It tastes like rock. You're right. So, <laughs> gives you a little something, gives you some minerals, <laughs> certainly keeps your electrolyte balance up. Mushrooms, of all the non-flowering plants, tend to be the ones that interest us the most because we can eat them. But most of the time, when I'm talking about botany, I don't spend very much time talking about the non-flowering plants. Because mostly... We're interested in the flowering plants. As herbalists, we're mostly interested in the flowering plants, too. And the flowering plants are colorful, fascinating, evocative. And there are Mm -hmm. lots and lots and lots of them. And we can pretty easily tell them apart. As I said, if you actually seriously sit down and start looking, you can tell mushrooms apart and mosses apart and lichens apart, but most of us don't. And non-flowering plants are, in a way, are, are alien to us because they live a life that is so different from us. And mushrooms especially, even though we eat them, mushrooms are the great recyclers, right? So out there in, na- in nature... When something dies, the mushrooms come in and start eating it and turning it back into its constituent parts. And so I will often say to the apprentices, you can trust the plants. If you taste a plant and the plant says, I am good to eat, then the plant is not going to be lying to you. It really is good to eat. But if you taste a mushroom and the mushroom says, I am good to eat, well, I wouldn't go so far as to say the mushroom is lying to you, but think about what a mushroom thinks is a good idea. A mushroom thinks death is a good idea because that's what a mushroom lives on. So you can trust what a mushroom says, but you have to trust it from trust it from the mushroom's point of view and not from your point of view. Mm-hmm. Mushrooms were definitely one of my very first loves. They drew me out into nature as a young naturalist, in a way that the flowering plants couldn't because the mushrooms, to me, were more secretive. At that time in my life, I really needed to to go to ground. I needed to be crawling around on the ground. I needed to be looking with a microscope and looking with a magnifying glass and really getting my nose into things. And the mushrooms really provided that for me in a way that the flowering plants, which how wonderfully lift us up and out of ourselves, don't. The mushrooms brought me into myself and brought me into myself in a very rich and deep and 
complex and very satisfying way. I still enjoy reading about and studying about and looking at mushrooms. But I don't teach about them very much anymore, although um, if women are here, say, for the uh, green uh, witch holiday or for the green goddess apprentice week and there are edible mushrooms about I will certainly introduce them to mushrooms and uh, introduce them to eating mushrooms I'm a very big fan of eating mushrooms especially wild mushrooms I remember the early experiments at Duke University looking at what plants could counter cancer and they found that every mushroom they tried countered some form of cancer. So I figure eat more mushrooms. Yes, even the button mushrooms, the white mushrooms you buy at the store, but there's tastier mushrooms than that. Some mushrooms, you know, at least on a weekly basis as a counter against cancer. So that brings us to, in a general way, to where we'll pick up next week. We will be yeah. adieu to the non-flowering plants, and we will begin to involve ourselves deeply and specifically with the flowering plants. Okay. So next week will okay. be about flowering plants or one more week of non-flowering? Nope. We're going to be talking about flowering plants next oh, week. Oh, good. Good. Yes, we'd have nothing. Okay. I, have, I, I don't have anything, you know, really further to say about the non-flowering plants. Uh, they're interesting. Enjoy them. Um, if you want to, you know, get a field guide or just go out and look around and see what different ones there are. Not not the world's best season for looking at ferns and mushrooms, but there's a lot of lichens out during the winter. Right. And just going out and looking at lichens on trees and rocks will give you a sense of, oh, yeah, these really, these are called plants. And, mm. you know, one of the non-flowering plants that, that herbalists do use is usnea. And remember, yes. we were reading about usnea and Stephen Herod Booner's Herbal Antibiotics, and he was talking about the other non-flowering plants that grow on the usnea. Right. Right, and that the synergistic effect of all of those different non-flowering plants that we get in just one remedy. So it's a fascinating field, but for our study of botany, we're going to focus in next week on flowering plants and really get down with them. Good. Yeah. And lichens, you know, lycanthropes, be careful in winter. There could be werewolves as a lycanthrope, so you know, there could always be that. <laughs> Tell me more. Werewolves like lichen? <laughs> but we have to go. We'll have to wait for next week. <laughs> okay, I'll wait for next week. Remember, everybody, right. herbal medicine is people's medicine. It's the medicine that grows right outside your door. Thanks so much for having me here on the Main Street Universe. Green blessings, everybody. Good night. Thank you, Susan, so much again. Thank you so much. And everybody, you've been listening to Green Magic, Green Medicine with your host, Miss Susan Wee. Forbidden archaeology, forgotten history, divination, magic, cryptozoology, UFOs, nature, science, and spirit. All this and more right here on the Main Street Universe Radio Network.
Thank you. 